This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. As you've heard, we live in a time where there's growing concern not only about the potential lifelong impact of deprivation and early adversity in childhood, but we also live in a time of global adversity with rapidly increasing natural disasters, rising political conflict. We have the largest number of refugees we think we've ever had in human history right now, and we're just at the beginning stages of what's going to happen with climate change. And yet, my theme here today is despite these disturbing adversities and their increase, there's evidence of resilience all around us. And we better figure out how to mobilize that capacity to address the scale of problems we have. And many of the issues we've heard about today and many of the global mass trauma threats to human existence in the world today are multisystemic in nature. And for that reason, this is my preferred definition of resilience. Resilience is the capacity of a system, could be a child, could be a family, an economy, um, a lake, a global climate, a society. But the capacity of a complex adaptive system to adapt successfully to these challenges that threaten system function, survival, or development. And the reason I think it's important to have this kind of a definition is because if we're going to deal with the complexity of the threats facing child development and life on the planet, we have to be able to integrate our sciences across levels. We need a definition of resilience that is scalable from a molecular level up through various increasing macrosystem levels of social organization, and we need a way to in- integrate what we know about ecological threats with what we know about social, and other kinds of threats. And I also think we need a definition from a developmental perspective that is consistent and recognizes that human beings are developing systems. And I particularly do a lot of research with the living systems like this child and the families in which uh, children are nurtured. But development emerges from many systems interacting over multiple levels. It's an emergent phenomenon. And we also know that the systems of a child's life are not only interacting all the time, but they're embedded with each other and interconnected in such a way that a child's experience is influenced both directly by some of the systems they interact with, their family, their friends, they go to school eventually and interact with schools, but also by the systems indirectly connected to children. There are national policies, their community resources that indirectly affect the development and well-being of children. And my picture here is just the socio-ecological systems. I, of course, there's systems within the child that you've been hearing about all day, and those can be incorporated into the picture as well. So from a systems perspective, resilience is dynamic. It's changing over time because human beings are changing over time. They're developing, they're constantly interacting with other systems, and the capacity for adaptation that you or I have or any child is distributed across systems. It isn't just in the child 
or just in the individual person. Because you have, you can draw on capacity and resources that you have access to via relationships that you have with people, like social support and many other systems that can provide you with uh, help and support of many different kinds. Also, child resilience doesn't just depend on many systems outside the child. It also depends on the resilience of those systems. This is strikingly apparent in a, in a major disaster when all the systems collapse at once. And then we all realize how dependent we are on the operation of many other systems to function in the world. This kind of model also would suggest there are going to be diverse pathways of adaptation. There, there's not just one way, one path that reflects resilience, but there are many different paths of adaptation. It depends on many different individual and contextual differences, as well as development itself. Now, adversity matters. And this is a typical risk gradient here. These data happen to come from an emergency shelter focused on 8- to 10-year-old children. And what you see here is that if you, you're already in an emergency shelter, but ignoring that for a minute, if you just count up the, these major risk factors that are present in the life of the individual children here, you can see that the more risk that's piled up in the life of the children, the more problems they're exhibiting on this measure. But that's on average. And what those kind of pictures don't show is the variation within risk levels. So we know that there, you know, on average, problems with health and behavior increase with a piling up of risk factors. But we also see a lot of variation. And the resilience investigators from the very beginning were fascinated by trying to understand the, pe the people represented by the white spots here, the people that are doing okay or doing very well, even though they have been exposed to a lot of risk factors. How do we account for that? Here's a different kind of risk gradient. This one is longitudinal. These are growth curves. These are based on uh, all the reading achievement data in the Minneapolis public schools over a five-year window of time where the kids were tested every fall, which they routinely do, using administrative data here. And we've divided the children into four groups to illustrate uh, a continuum of risk. The solid line there in the middle is your norm reference point. This test is designed for growth, so it's measuring improve, you know, increases over time. And what you're looking at in the solid line is around the 50th percentile uh, expected growth. The bottom group are kids who've experienced homelessness at some time during the whole window of this t period of the study. And we were surprised to see that 14% of the students in the Minneapolis public schools had experienced homelessness. Usually they're picked up when they enter an emergency shelter with their family. Um, but there's other ways. Sometimes people, you know, are doubled up or living on the street or something like that. But these kids are pulled out first. So they've experienced a homelessness. It doesn't really matter a whole lot when it was. This is an indicator of high Risk, And you can see here, their reading achievement in the third grade starts around the 12th percentile on average, and, and their achievement is significantly lower than kids who are uh, qualified for free meals, who are living in poverty, but not have, have not experienced homelessness. And both those groups, who are very disadvantaged, are achieving at a much, much lower level than the norm reference point. And then if you look at the top group, those are kids who have not experienced 
free meals or homelessness. That's the only way that they're low risk. But they start off at the 75th percentile on reading achievement and stay there. What you're looking at here is the extraordinary achievement disparities that many cities are worried about and we are particularly concerned about in Minneapolis because we have very high achievement overall in our state but horrible achievement disparities. And you know, th- this is a huge issue. We're talking about between that top group and the bottom group a four-year difference in achievement. It's a huge gap. But that's not the whole story here again. If you take the bottom group and now look at them as individuals, at their individual growth curves, you see this scatter plot here, the famous spaghetti plot where you cannot make out any individual. However, you just have to believe me when I tell you that we're looking at a five standard deviation range here. What hits you when you see it this way is the variation. And about 45% of the kids um, in this group are doing okay, meaning average or better, on both reading and math throughout the entire period. And those kids clearly have a different situation or different resources than the kids who are achieving at the first percentile along the way. And these kind of data beg the question, what accounts for this? What makes a difference? Because we'd like to know what makes a difference so we can make progress on addressing these kind of disparities. So there's been a lot of research on this topic. School district data sets can be great, but they don't have as many of the protective factors of interest to people like me as I'd like. So you have to do some other kinds of studies. In these data, we do know that going attendance matters. It turns out that homeless kids don't attend school as often. They miss a lot of school, and that does affect reading scores. And they all, it also turns out that a one-minute reading test in first grade predicts both the intercept and the growth here in these growth curves. So where you start off does matter. So there's been decades of research on resilience, and what I've highlighted in this slide is some of the most common protective factors that have been observed in many different kinds of studies. What's striking is that despite all the different types of adversities that have been studied, ranging from war experiences and being a child soldier to divorce or child maltreatment in the home, that a a small number of protective factors keep turning up in many different kinds of studies. And this led me in this book and other places to talk, describe the short list. What I mean by that, these are the most salient uh, protective factors that stand out in this literature. And on the right side, I've uh, listed what I would think would be implicated as the adaptive systems that account for those uh, things on the short list. And I would argue that these, we've heard about some of these today, but these are probably the leg- human legacy of both biological and sociocultural evolution. That uh, That's why they're so pervasive uh, in different situations and cultures around the world. Another interesting thing I wanted to show you about what we've learned about resilience is that in the history of the science, the study of individual child resilience proceeded almost entirely separately, surprisingly enough, from the study of family resilience at the family system level. The different group of researchers, they hardly ever interacted. And 
now they're beginning to put their story together. And what I did in this article was just take the two literatures and line up the protective factors that are frequently described. And they show, I think, very striking parallels across different kinds of factors. And I don't think that's coincidental. I think we're looking at either systems that are constantly interacting, so they're part of larger systems, or they've co-evolved. But you can tell me what you think later. There are a lot of roots of resilience in early childhood. And... um, you know, there's great summaries uh, on that literature of why early childhood is so important, and I'll let you. This website here, the Encyclopedia of Early Childhood Development, has a lot of information on that topic as well as resilience. But what we've learned is that families matter in multiple ways, and what we've heard a lot about today underscores decades of evidence that either the absence or loss of caring parents or the presence of harsh, neglecting care, especially in early childhood, threatens and can have life-altering consequences for human development that lasts throughout a whole lifetime and possibly now even into the next generation. Adversity in early childhood around you know, losing the quality of care or not having it creates a kind of double jeopardy for kids in early childhood because not only do they currently lack protection, but the absence of good quality care undermines the development of many domains of competence and compromises future resilience of of children. And we know that interventions that improve parenting, many different kinds kinds of interventions that focus on boosting up parenting, whether it's foster parents, natural parents, um, or adopting parents, promote positive development. It seems to be a very powerful protective system. And in some cases, you get cascading effects, and we need to know more about when we do and when we don't. Here's some data from research in shelters, where I've done a lot of research over the years locally in Minnesota, showing the moderating effect of parenting quality on uh, child adversity. These are young children, like four- to six-year-olds, in whose families are staying in shelters, very high-risk group. And what you can see here, different kinds, we've used different strategies of measuring parenting. On the right, you have an outcome of academic functioning, how well the child is functioning in terms of achievement and academic things. And you can see here there's both a main effect for good parenting quality and a protective effect. So good parenting always is associated with better academic achievement. But in high-risk situations, it's even more important to get an additional effect. On the left, you see a graph for child trauma symptoms. And in this situation, when adversity is really low, you don't see much in the way of child Uh, trauma symptoms, but as adversity rises, you begin to see these symptoms, and then you also begin to see the moderating effect of good parenting. And in that particular study, the parenting was um, measured by observational coding in structured parent-child interaction. Child skills also matter, and There's a lot of interest right now in executive function skills, and I see a lot of you out there using your executive function skills, listening to these talks, paying attention, figuring out slides, and so forth. But children need these kind of cognitive control skills 
to even enter kindergarten and begin to learn. They have to be able to listen to the teacher, sit on the circle, control the behavior, and so forth. And there's been a lot of interest in these skills because they predict school success, and they do it particularly well for very high-risk children. Here's some data, again, from research with homeless children, where we assessed their executive function skills using a battery while they were in shelter and then follow them to kindergarten and first grade. And we find the kids that are doing well, both in terms of learning and behavior, have better executive function skills. And that's led people, our group as well as other groups, to try to focus on boosting executive function skills. Those interest loads of people because they show high plasticity during the preschool window. So we may be able to boost up the school readiness of children. Education also matters, and um, schools have a lot of the same features and characteristics of healthy, effective families, and I won't dwell on that. We can talk about it later if you like. And communities also matter. There's less research on the ways in which effective communities bolster resilience in the families and children that live within those communities, but there's a lot of interest in that right now to try to understand how that works. And there are important protective systems at other levels, both within the individual at the neurobiological levels. And there's also uh, a lot of interest in the capacity that's embedded in the great religions and many cultural systems around the world. And I didn't have time to do that here, but those also line up with the short list. So children never could wait on scientists to figure it all out. If you have a child in your office or a refugee camp, you have to act based on what you know. And so as the science developed... Um, there were people have tried to translate what there is knowledge from resilience basic science and intervention research into practice and this just this general process has had a transformative effect on practice and shifted the focus to, to away from just risk and vulnerabilities to protective processes and the idea of building capacity at multiple levels. So I want to close by saying that there's evidence of resilience all around us, that what uh, I think of as ordinary human adaptive systems, nothing rare and extraordinary about it, but these ordinary adaptive systems are very powerful. Resilience can be nurtured and promoted. And the resilience in children depends on the resilience of, of many interconnected systems, and particularly on the supports that are embedded in their proximal systems of families and communities. We can build resilience in early childhood programs, and it's important that we focus on that based on what we've heard today and based on a lot of other evidence that there's a very high return on investing in early childhood because there are multiple cascading effects across levels and across domains. And I'll just close by showing this picture. Um, I offer a MOOC on Coursera on the topic of resilience in children from a global perspective, and it's fun to have people join into the discussion forums on that MOOC. Thank you for your executive function here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.